Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and Lord, we want to acknowledge our need, our lack. Uh, Lord, we won't get everything out of your word that you have for us except for you opening our understanding and and, uh, illuminating truth for us. Lord, we want to we want to hear your word. We want to we want to know your word. We want to understand it. We want wisdom to apply it. And and Lord, in that we want to grow closer to you and knowing you and knowing your heart. And so, God, help us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in Genesis chapter twenty-seven, we saw we saw Isaac. He's, you know, here, here, this is a mighty man of faith and here he is in 27, kind of walking in the flesh and he wants some venison stew, he wants something good to eat and he's gonna bless Isaac. He knows the word of God from chapter 25. He knows that the elder will serve the younger, but you know, maybe they heard it wrong and, and so he, he, Esau's his favorite. That's where Isaac is at and, and he wants to see the Abrahamic covenant, the promises of God go through Esau and Esau's line. And so he says, you go bring me that, that venison, that, cook it the way I love, and, and I'm gonna hook you up, bro. Rebecca overhears it, and, and she knows what she heard from the Lord, and, and oh, by the way, Jacob's her favorite, and he's a man of the tents, and so she wants to make sure that he receives that blessing, right, from the Father. He wants, she wants the Abrahamic covenant to go through her favorite son, Jacob, and so, the lion, the cheating, and the stealing commences. And so they fake out Esau, he's blind, uh, he can't see well, and, and Rebecca's got the recipe, so she's making the meal exactly the way that he wants it, and, and, uh, and Isaac knows something's up, but, but the food's good, and, and it sure feels like, it, sure, it, it doesn't sound like, but it sure feels like, it sure smells like, like Esau, and so in trusting his senses, he makes a mistake, he falls for the lie, and, and at the end of the day, what God ordained ends up happening. Uh, Jacob receives the Abrahamic covenant, okay? So you know, Esau comes in, and, and uh, he's bringing, I got the deer meat, Pop, and he's like, who are you? And well, I'm Esau, hook me up with a blessing, and he's like, I already blessed your little brother, and he will be blessed. Okay, so now, if dad's on the brink of death, as soon as, he's, as soon as we're done crying for him, Esau's thinking, I will murder him, and then that will solve all my problems. Re- Rebecca gets wind of the plan, and so she, under the guise of saying, man, I'm, and I'm sure it was true, she can't stand Esau's wives, but she's saying, you know, if Jacob takes one of these wives, or takes a wife from one of these uh, surrounding uh, families, it's, it's gonna drive me to, to distraction. I can't do it, I can't put up with it. So let's send him home to, to find a bride. And so that's the stage now for chapter 28. We're gonna see Jacob's departure here uh, in chapter 28. Let's pick it up. And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said unto him, thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy, thy, thy brother's mother, or I'm, I'm thy brother's mother, thy mother's brother. And uh, God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people. Notice what he's doing here. And give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. So here in verses three and four, Isaac, having just freshly been deceived, he confirms that Jacob is the true recipient of the Abrahamic covenant. So the response is not one of cursing. Remember Jacob, that was his fear. You know, if we're gonna, I mean, if we're gonna lie to dad and try to steal that blessing from Esau, I'm afraid, he wasn't afraid about the lying and the stealing, he was afraid of getting caught. Instead of receiving a blessing, dad's gonna curse me that was Jacob's very real fear. But the response is not cursing, but confirmation of the Abrahamic covenant. It's also interesting that the commands keep going. Yeah, you get the Abrahamic covenant, but, but notice how dad starts. You're not gonna take one of the local gals, you're gonna go back home to your mother, mother's brother's house. In other words, the command is marry your cousin. Uh, different days back then. 
Marry your cousin. Why? Well, that's God's will. Okay, that was then, not now, unless you live in Alabama or New York. <laughs> States like that. So there's that. That explains a lot. Uh, then Isaac, verse 5, sent away Jacob. Yeah, you didn't know that you could marry your first cousin in New York, did you? But there it is. Okay, so I looked it up. I was shocked at the list <laughs> where, where it was still cool. It was still copacetic to marry your first cousin. So anyway, okay, so Isaac said, you know, I'm not saying you're, you're in sin if you did, but, you know. So to, I've met my cousins. <laughs> no way. Okay, so anyway. <laughs> Isaac sent away Jacob, and he went to Padanaram unto Laban, son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's, and Esau's mother. Now, here's what you need to know at this point. Jacob is not a kid, when he's sent to go find a bride. He's actually kind of an old man. Uh, what, what, what you're gonna see is that Jacob is actually kind of a late bloomer. So get this down in your notes. Jacob was not a young man when he started out. Believe it or not, he was roughly 77 years old when he leaves his mother's tent. You say, there's no way he's that old. Nobody waits that long to launch. Okay, this is midway through the life of Jacob. He lived to be 147 years of age. We find that out at the end of Genesis, Genesis 47, 28. Now, what I want to do very quickly right now is just do the math on this. I'll tell you how I came to 77. This is what was taught to me, and I uh, found out a few things, and, and so all of that got put into the notes, and I'm just going to run this. I'm, I'm going to run through this with you, and it's okay if you can't keep up with all the cross-references and the dates and the times, but just get all the blanks filled in and then just go home and work through it all and make sure it makes sense to you. Okay, so get this down. We know from Genesis that, Je that Joseph, Jacob's son, was 17 when he was sold into Egypt. You're like, I thought we were talking about Jacob's age. Well, the way we get to 77 years of age for Joseph, uh, for Jacob, is we gotta start by finding out some details about the rest of his family, so namely Joseph. Joseph was 17 when he was sold into Egypt and the Bible tells us he was 30 when he was presented to Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh has a dream. We'll look at that in chapter 41, verse 46. And then, so, so he's, Joseph, Jacob's son, is 30 years old when he's talking to Pharaoh and he's talking about seven years of famine, or seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. Seven years of plenty, two years of famine pass when Jacob and his family, the rest of Joseph's family come in Genesis 45. That means Joseph was 39 years old when Jacob arrived in Egypt. Well now the Bible tells us in Genesis 47 that Jacob was 130 years old when he went to Egypt. Therefore, that means that Jacob was 91 years old when Joseph was born. You see how we did it? We had to know the details about Joseph in order to nail down when Jacob, Jacob's age when Joseph was born. He was 91 years old when Joseph was born and that was the point that he had fulfilled his 14 years of service to his father-in-law, Laban. That means then, just do the math, that means Jacob was 77 years of age when he left, for, when he left Canaan to go find a cousin wife. Okay, you're like, that didn't clear up anything for me. Fill in the blanks and suss it out. Look up all the cross-references and, and, and you're gonna find out he was 77 years of age. Now, maybe you'll find something else and uh, you know, check me out on it. Maybe there's something you'll find that, that, that sheds a little more light on the subject. Uh, but that's what I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna put my stake at 77 years of age. 77 years old when he leaves his tent to find a wife. Late bloomer. That's what Joseph, mama's boy was a late bloomer, but that's okay. Now look at Esau when, in verse six. When Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take a wife from thence, that as he blessed him, he gave him charge saying, thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob, watch this now, that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and was gone to Padanaram um, he was gone to Padanaram. Okay, so Joe, Joe's, Joe's all about obeying dad now, <laughs> which is interesting. You know, in chapter 27, 
he was obeying his mom to the point of sin and lying to his dad to steal from his brother, right? So, I mean, not trustworthy, but, but now here he's trusting and obeying. I mean, what a mess. And, and God's gonna use all of this. There's division now in this family over the lies. Um, Jacob is never gonna see his mom again, right? This family is ruptured at this point. And yet God's gonna use it all. God's gonna use it to mature Jacob, to make him the man that he wants him to be. Uh, God has the ability to take our rebellion and our mess. As long as we start following after the Lord, he'll take the mess that is behind us and use it to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that God works all things together for good. Okay, so I I should just go out and live like hell then and do what I want. Well, no, if you sow to the flesh, Galatians 6 6 tells you, you're gonna reap corruption and death. But at the point where you start sowing to the Spirit, at the point where you start following hard after God, that's the point where God will take even the mess of the past and use it to make you the man or woman of faith that he wants you to be. Uh, I remember um, I was helping Alan in a counseling situation. This was back when I was just starting out in ministry and and I remember Alan saying something to a, to a young man that was trying to get his life back together. He says, you know, I don't care what happened in the past. Whatever it took to bring you to this place of repentance and faith where you're following hard after God, good. Something woke you up and got you sowing to the Spirit. Man, praise the Lord. And God will take all of that mess in the past and he's gonna use it to make you wiser. He's gonna make you fuller of faith. He's gonna make you more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thought, man, how mighty is our God that he can take a life that's just completely wrecked and make something beautiful and wonderful out of it. You know, God's in the restoration business. You knew that, right? And however great things were before, when God's done finishing the restoration, it's far better. I mean, it's far better. God is in, he's in restoration work. So here's Esau, seeing Jacob obey dad now. He's gonna go find a cousin to marry. And so Esau thinks, huh. Verse eight, and Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac, his father, uh, it was actually his mom that, that, that stirred this up, but, but dad's with her on this. Verse nine, then went Esau unto Ishmael and took unto and took unto the wives which he had, uh, Mahaleth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abram's son, and the sister of Nebajoth to be his wife. So what he does is he's taking wives now from near family. Esau also marries, I mean, he marries a, a cousin, right? But he doesn't care about spiritual truth. If you'll remember, in terms of the kingdom, God rejected Ishmael, didn't he? It's in Isaac, right? Isaac is the child of promise, okay? It's in Isaac that the, that the kingdom will be built. Okay, so he doesn't care that God's rejected Ishmael. He doesn't care about God's plan of one man and one wife. He's already got two wives, now he adds a third, and in doing so, he's doubling down on his rebellion. In other words, what he's doing is like, okay, fine, in your face, Dad, I'll marry someone that you approve of, And at the end of all of it, at the root of all of it, is Esau just wants what he wants, the way he wants it. He doesn't care about spiritual things. His God is his belly. He is a profane person. He's not spiritually or kingdom-minded. Okay, so here in the Genesis account, the focus now goes entirely on Jacob. Remember, with Isaac and this decision that he makes in chapter 27, he comes off, this is where he comes off the scene. We won't see him again until his death. So now here we are, Jacob and the famous dream. Let's, let's break it down in verse 10. So Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. Now watch this. Look, look what Mama's boy does. This man of the tents, okay, he's used to sophisticated comfortable living. He took of the stones of that place and put them for pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. Okay, you can say whatever you want about Jacob, but mama's boy is tough. (laughs) 
And we're gonna keep seeing that. Jacob is actually one tough, I mean, he's a bad mammer jammer. You wouldn't wanna mess with this guy. Uh, he is, he's a tough dude. Uh, he takes the stones of this place and makes pillow, uh, uh, pillows, and the plan is to sleep on these things. Man, I've got, like, I've got, a, I've got this like, high-tech foam mattress, okay, <laughs> with a pillow top. Okay, and I've got this, I've got this uh, pillow that, that's like some space age material that, that gives you a cool side. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? It's a cooling pillow and I lay on it because you know I get hot spots on my face. Next thing I know my ears burning off and I, and I can't sleep and then, and then that's not enough, okay? My wife got tired of me just, I guess, I guess I'd, I, I, I'd, I'd wrestle her in my sleep or something. And so she's tired of me overlaying her. You know, what is it about a dude? He's gotta have a leg over something before he can sleep, you know? And so there's my wife and I'm just constantly chasing her and, and we, weren't very, we weren't very long into our marriage before she's like, I bought you a girlfriend. And I'm like, what? That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That is wicked. I mean, I read Genesis. I know the right answer to this. Like, what are you talking about? That is wicked. She's like, it's called a body pillow. You're gonna throw your leg over that so I can get some sleep, <laughs> okay? So I've got a pillow for my knee. Okay, so I, follow me now. Foam mattress, pillow top, space age pillow, pillow for my knee, still not enough. It's not enough. I need a pillow for my hand. I got like, when that hand's out there, if my arm's straight, like I can't sleep, it hurts, so I gotta have another pillow to learn, like, my hand, whatever side I'm on, that, that hand has to find a pillow or I can't sleep. What, what are we up to now? Three pillows, soft and fluffy and cushy, and still last night I woke up wide awake at three in the morning, I couldn't sleep. I mean, what in the world? This dude has got rocks for pillows. He's got to sleep. I, I, just, I just say all that to say this. Do not underestimate Jacob. This is one tough dude. Okay, but now what's really happening here He's going through a heart, I mean, come on. Mama's boy is outside the tent sleeping on rocks, y'all. He's going through literally a hard time, pun intended. He is going through a hard time. And so just maybe make a note, right? This is keys. You know, sometimes it takes a hard time in a hard place to come to the point where fellowship with God is actually possible. You know, when everything's going your way all the time, you feel like you're walking on easy street. What, what need do you have of the Lord? Everything's working out fine for you. I'm so grateful for the hard times that God allows in my life. I never liked them. <laughs> I, I've never come to a hard place in my life and said, oh, this is great. But they've always been great because they bring me to a place where I recognize my need. They, they bring me to a place where I'm actually willing to hear what the Lord says about my circumstances. Sometimes it takes a hard time to bring you to a place where fellowship with God is possible. A hard time is a good thing when it brings you to a place where you actually start following after God, where you stop going away that's right in your own eyes and you say, God, what are you doing in my life? It's when your life comes apart. Those are the times when you're willing to stop what you're doing and actually say, okay, what does God say? What is God's way? What would God have me to do moving forward? So it's when you come to the end of yourself, the end of your scheming, that you can listen and hear truth. And that's what happens. God now, in this hard place, in this hard time in his life, God reveals some incredible insight into who he is. Okay, look at verse 12. And he dreamed. And behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. That is one of the most amazing verses in your Bible. It gives you incredible insight into the person of the creator. You actually see the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is and what he does. You say, what you talking about? Well, okay, don't miss this. Number one, God reveals insight to and gives his word to Jacob in a dream. And in this dream, he sees this ladder that angels travel back and forth from heaven to earth. They're traveling, they're ascending and descending on this ladder. You thought angels could fly wherever they wanted. No, they can't get anywhere without Jesus. That's what I want you to see this morning. You remember back in Genesis chapter 11 and verse four, what, what Nimrod, what the Nimrodic kingdom wanted to build, what they want to build? They wanted to build a tower whose top would reach to heaven. 
That's what they wanted. Well, that had already been built by God. Built is your next blank. God already built what, what Nimrod wanted, God already had in himself. Did Nimrod know what, J- I mean, Jacob just dreamed this, but did Nimrod have this insight from back pre-flood, you know, Genesis chapter six days? Did he already know about a ladder whose top reached to heaven? Was Nimrod trying to replicate this function somehow? In Genesis 11, uh, yeah, 11 verse four, they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So you guys know the story. In Genesis chapter three, man rebelled against his creator and lost fellowship with God. The innocent had to be sacrificed to cover the nakedness of man's sin, but there was a corruption of the flesh that took place. In Genesis chapter three, in verse 15, we saw that first prophecy in scripture that the seed of the woman would produce the Messiah, the skull crusher that would destroy Satan's hold over man. And Satan knows this, he believes the word of God, and so he immediately begins attacking the seed of the woman, and so from the very beginning, you know, Cain kills Abel, and from there it just keeps getting worse and worse until Genesis six, all flesh is corrupted before God. So God has to, he has to hit the reset button on the human genome. Okay, so from Genesis six, what do you have? By the time the, the, the flood is, is done, in Genesis chapter nine, God tells Noah the exact same thing he told Adam, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. So the function, the responsibility of man is to fill the earth with life that will absolutely take God seriously, fill the earth with life that will love and worship the Lord. Well, God raised, you know, God raised up a man, he raised up Noah. Satan counteracts that, he, he, he countermoves that. And so Satan raises up a man called Nimrod, the first perfect type of antichrist. And what is he saying? We don't wanna replenish the earth. We don't wanna fill the earth with God's glory. Let's keep humanity sequestered and bring me glory. Let's make a name for ourselves. And what, how are we gonna do that? We're gonna, you know, God's got this ladder whose top reaches to heaven. We'll do the same thing. I'm gonna build a tower whose top will reach heaven. What's he do? Satan counterfeits who God is, what God does. He counterfeits the way of God, the way to heaven. And that's exactly what's happening here. So get, don't miss this picture. Men cannot get to heaven in their own will and their own religion. There's only one ladder, there's only one way. Only God can make a way. And what I want you to see this morning is the ladder, this way, back and forth to heaven, it leads only to, it, it is actually only Christ himself. This ladder is so much a type of Christ, it's a function of who he is. Uh, it, this ladder's Jesus, you say prove it. Okay, fine, John chapter one, verse 51. And he saith unto him, verily I saith unto you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Son of Man, in your Bible is a messianic reference to who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And what's he saying? You're gonna see angels ascending and descending on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how did you miss that? Genesis chapter 28 verse 12 says, Jacob dreamed about this. Behold, a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of God, look at the exact phrasing of this. The Bible's designed so that you'll cross-reference it so that you'll compare scripture with scripture, so you'll get spiritual insight. The angels on this ladder are ascending and descending upon it. The only other place that you see angels ascending and descending upon something, it's upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Is everybody with me on that? Does that make sense? Man, this is amazing. Jesus, who knew that Jesus was a ladder? And yet he is the only way to heaven. I don't care what space age, incredible, I mean super science they come up with that's gonna allow them to bend and warp space time. You cannot use it to get to Mount Zion. There is only one way. I mean, uh, heaven is, is, 
Heaven is locked down so much better than Fort Knox ever was. You're not just gonna get in there any old which way. It's Jesus who bridges the great gap caused by sin. It's Jesus that makes a way to heaven. It's Jesus. I mean, there's a separation between earth and heaven. God himself has to cross the divide and make a way. Man tries to do it, but only God gets it done. Jesus is the only way from man to God. In John chapter 14, verse six, he says it clearly, I am the way, I am the ladder, (laughs) I am your access point to heaven and to the Father. So here's the picture, the the ladder that Joseph dreams about, it reaches, so like you you ought to underline that in your Bible, right, this ladder in verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 12, reached, It reached to heaven, right? It's set up on the earth, it reached to heaven. What happened when Christ came to earth? He made the way to heaven. So it's sufficient, the ladder actually reached. That's the the sufficiency of Christ and the salvation that he brings. In Acts chapter four and verse 12, it says, there is none other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Why? Because only Jesus is the way. Colossians 1 verse 20, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, it's through Christ alone that man can be reconciled back to God. It's through Christ alone that man can reach heaven. 1 Timothy chapter two verse five says there is one God and one mediator between God and man. Between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Uh, I don't know what to tell you. Jesus is the latter. He is the only access point to heaven to the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to God but through him, but by him. Isn't that amazing? You never knew, I mean, how many are like, I never knew Jesus was a ladder. Man, praise the Lord. For the, I mean, forget Jack and the Beanstalk. That's just an accident waiting to happen. You want secure rungs to cling to that will take you. Christ will take you to the Father. Now from this, we know something incredible. Angels are climbers. That's what they are, they're climbers. Hebrews chapter one verse 14 says that they're ministering spirits, they're workers. And so what are, they, what are they doing? At the behest of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all creation, they're fulfilling their functions. And so they're doing it, the means by which they do it is through Christ himself. It's by Christ that all things consist. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. Why do you think it's any different for the angels? So it's through the person, the function of Christ, that they, from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, back and forth, They are receiving their orders and they're doing their work. Angels are climbers and they can climb, they can work via only one way and that's upon Jesus. Again, John chapter one, uh, verse so awesome, we gotta say it twice. We'll pick it up in verse 50. Jesus answered and said unto him, because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. You guys know the story, right? I mean, this future apostle, he's this, this future disciple of Christ is blown away because Jesus calls him out, identifies him before they ever met. And Jesus is like, that impressed you? Bro, you're gonna get your mind blown <laughs> because you're gonna actually see something incredible. Verse, again, here it is again, verse 51. And he saith unto him, verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending, ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So angels don't just go where they want, how they want. They serve Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. So they serve Jesus via his way and his will. All right, verse 13. Look at what God says to Jacob in this dream. We're gonna call this the gospel to Jacob. It's just so beautiful. Verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it, Jehovah stands above this ladder and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac and the land whereon thou liest to thee will I give it and to thy seed and thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in thee 
and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest and will bring thee again into this land for I will not leave thee, I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. God said that to a schemer. To a guy that just lied to his dad. And God confirms, you know, Isaac confirmed the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob. God does the same right here. God confirms his promises. The land is for Jacob and his seed. And that God, his promise is that he's with Jacob and will protect him. Jacob is about to go through some stuff. I mean, everybody's like, he's getting ready to face Laban. Forget Laban, he's getting ready to face his own boys. I mean, we're gonna see Jacob go through some horrible, heart-wrenching trials. And the thing that's gonna bring him through is the fact that Jehovah himself, the Lord God Almighty, is with him. Do you see what God's promising him? And don't you know he's saying the exact same thing to you? Behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest. I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. That's God's promise to his people, is that he'll never leave or forsake us. And the promises that he makes us, he will keep. He will fulfill over us. So God's with Jacob and protecting him. And so don't miss that picture. The picture here is the security of the believer. Man, when God makes a promise to you, you can take it to the bank. So many Christians, they look at the promises of God and they don't believe them because of how they feel or what they did. Man, I really sinned, I really messed up. I can't believe I did that. I lied, I cheated, I lust, I stole, I, whatever it was. If that's in me, how could God ever be with me? And you fail to recognize the dual nature of the believer. There's the old man, there's the new man. There's the flesh and there's the spirit. Uh, one or the other is in operation. This is why we need to mortify the will and the deeds of the flesh and put on the new man and walk in the spirit. Well, but I really blew it, I really messed up. Well, agree with God over that sin, right? Agree with him, that sin, I don't wanna do that, and start walking in the spirit. Start moving forward in faith because it doesn't matter how you feel, it matters what God said. These things have I written, why? So that you'll go through life guessing? No, that you can know that you have eternal life. You know, your salvation is not based on your feelings, it's based on God's promises. And you're either gonna submit to the promises of God or you're gonna keep going by your feelings, which by the way is a way that seems right in your own eyes, and that always leads to spiritual death, sometimes even physical death. There's a way that seems right to a man. But what seems right to you, if you're going by what seems right, you can get tripped up, you can get messed up so many different ways. I don't wanna go by how I feel or what I think seems right. I wanna live my life based on what God said. That changes everything. Your feelings change, your circumstances change. What seems true to you will change from moment to moment. How many's opinions on things evolve, right? I used to think this, but my views on the matter have evolved. You know why they did? Because either A, you were stupid before, or you're stupid now. You didn't know anything before, or you've been deceived now. You are movable, you are changeable, right? Your emotions, your ability to discern is so easily tripped up, man. Don't go by what you think or by what you feel. Your emotions or your changing circumstances be grounded in the bedrock of God's word because God keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises and his promise to you is he'll never leave you or forsake you. Did you give your life to Christ or not? Then he took it. If you gave your life to Christ, he has it and he will, you are, you are literally damned to heaven. <laughs> you are doomed to an eternity with God. People talk about being damned to hell. The only way that that can happen is you go into eternity rejecting Christ. That's the only way that that can happen. That's the only way. You have to go into eternity rejecting him. Why would you do that? When his promises over you, they're so rich, they're manifold, they're beautiful. He loves you. He wants you. The things, the mess that you made of your life, he wants to restore. God's in the restoration business. 
He wants to take your life and he wants to make it his own. He wants to make his life your life. Man, I wish I could say this in a way that you'd see it and you would believe it and you would understand it. God is love and he loves you. Don't go, don't go through life wasting your life, just wasting so much time going, going by how you feel or what you think. Down in Kid Town, they got it figured out. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Did you know that? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You didn't know that song. Brandon, did, did you know that song? You weren't singing it with me. <laughs> did you know that song? Did you know that song? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Everybody should learn that song and you should get in the habit of singing it while you're doing your chores. Trust and obey, especially if somebody else told you, maybe you're younger and you're doing your chores. Trust and obey, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And it is really true. Uh, it is really true to know that you're walking in obedience, not walking by how you feel. <laughs> you know, Eve felt like that fruit would really work things out for her. Verse 16. This revelation of who Christ was in his life brought Jacob to a place of sober dread. Look at verse 16. Jacob awaked out of his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, how dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Man, that's what I'm praying. I'm praying that people would walk into Midtown, Midtown Baptist Temple and be afraid and say, how dreadful is this place? You say, Pastor, have you lost your mind? No, don't miss what, like, he recognized he was in the presence of God Almighty and it shook him to his core. Brothers and sisters, you don't wanna. We had to make some decisions really early on whenever we started Midtown Baptist Temple. Do we want to be the church that is, is trying to present itself as being super hip and super cool to a lost and dying world? Because I mean, this fall will be 15 years old, okay? So we're, we're probably not a church plant anymore. Um, but it, sometimes it's hard for me to shift my mind as being one of the, the, the you know, part of the founding team, you know, the launch team that, that, that started MBT. But we had to make a decision. The prevailing wisdom of the day was, you know, basically stick your finger in the ear and sit, you know, in the air and, and in the ear, <laughs> stick your finger in the air and see which way the wind's blowing. And what, what are the expectations of the community on a church? And so basically what you do is you describe your demo. So let's say here in Westport, we're gonna, we're just, we're gonna describe the person that we're gonna reach as Westport Willie, you gotta give him a name. And Westport Willie, you describe him and what he is and and uh, Westport Willie's a, a hipster and he likes you know, specialty coffee and blah, blah, blah. You describe this person and then you set up your church services in such a way that when Westport Willie comes, he's like, this is a cool place. I really like it here. These, I, can, I could probably start spending time with these people and then, then over time, you just slowly woo them to Jesus. And I'm not knocking that, that you know, Paul said we're all things to all men that we might save some, right? We want to see, we want to see people come to Christ and so to the religious Jew, to somebody from that background and that mindset, I will identify, I'll become as a Jew, but to the lost heathen, well, I'll, I'll try to identify with them culturally. I'm, I'm made all things to all men that, I, I'm gonna use all means, all ways. I'm a fisher of men, right? What's the bait? I wanna win some to Christ, that's the objective. And so, so I'm, not, I'm not knocking the idea of being culturally sensitive in terms of reaching people. But at the end of the day, uh, we made a hard decision. We said, you know, God doesn't just love Westport Willie, he loves everyone. And this, so help us God by his grace, will be a church for all peoples. Red, brown, yellow, black and white, rich, poor, 
right? Laborer, business owner, if God makes them, they can be one new man in Christ, will be a family in this place. What'll be better than people being impressed with MBT in terms of how we're coming off is we want people to be blown away by who God is over the lives of his people. We want people to come in and say, of a surety, God is in this place. It's like 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, they fall down on their face and they worship God because they see the reality of him. I, I don't, I, my prayer isn't that you'll come in and think MBT's cool and this is a comfortable place to attend. Man, I pray you're anything but comfortable. I pray that you recognize that God is in the midst of his people, that he's at work, that you would say, how dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God. I want MBT to be the gate of heaven, why? Because Jesus is in the midst. That's his promise in Matthew, where two or three are gathered in his name, he's in the midst. That's how we pray. We wanna pray for God to be glorified, for God to have his way. But this is the place that we must all enter in. He says this is none other, right, but the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 10, verse nine. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. So this is, this is Jacob's first personal encounter with God and it humbles him. Praise the Lord. This is the first recognition. This is the first step in the end of Jacob and the beginning of Israel, right? Surely God is in this place. And so look at his decision, verse 18. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. Wearsby said, it's a wonderful thing that by faith a believer can turn a pillow into a pillar. But that's exactly what he does, man. On that stone, he saw Christ. So he gives an offering to the Lord. This pillow is special, this stone is, is special. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow saying, if God will be with me, that's what he just promised me, and will keep me in his way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. So don't miss how this chapter ends. Jacob, this chapter ends with Jacob building an altar to the Lord and pouring oil upon it. Oil in your Bible is a picture or a type of the Holy Spirit. Did I give you 1 Samuel 16, 13 as a cross reference? Uh, check it out. God is seeking worshipers in spirit and in truth. So he heard God's truth in this dream and so he's acknowledging it with this type or this picture of the spirit. He calls the place Bethel. Bethel means house of God. And you knew that from the text. Surely God is in this place, right? This is none other but the house of God. This is the gate of heaven, verse 17. So he names it Bethel. He changes the name from Luz. Luz means separation. That was the name of this place, it was called Luz. It was called the place of separation. So he renames it Bethel, house of God. So the picture is this. God calls us to be separate from the world, but in doing so, we have to enter into his house. You're not gonna go through life saying, I'm gonna be separate from the world on your own, okay? God didn't design Christianity to be some kind of Rambo religion. We watch Rambo and it's like, yes, one man can make a difference all by himself without any help from nobody. So, okay, it's a double negative. But so anyway, you need help, right? God did not design you to be a Rambo. You need God's people. You need to be part of the house of God. The house of God today is the church. Ephesians 2, 1 Timothy 3 explicitly say this. This is, right, in terms, of, in terms of the local churches that God operates through, the assembly that meets at 40th and Walnut, we, not this building, uh, we're grateful for this building, but the, the, the brick and the mortar of this, of this facility, this edifice, this is not the house of God. This is the house of God. Look around, look at the living stones that make up the habitation of the spirit, Ephesians 2. And I mean, like, there's some, probably some of the people that you're looking at really are blockheads, okay? 
uh, or will have stony countenances, but they are part of the house. They're part of the house. They're part of the habitation. We make up the dwelling place of God in Kansas City from 40th and Walnut. Nothing has changed. This is where God in heaven meets sinners on earth through the ladder of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is none other but the house of the Lord. And then the last thing I want you to see, dun, 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 tithing. Here it is, man. The law has not come yet. Moses isn't even a twinkle in his father's eye yet. We got a lot of time, okay? Hundreds of years before the, the, the giving of the law, what's Jacob doing? He's guaranteeing a tithe. Everything that God blesses him with, 10%, right off the top, goes right back to God into building his kingdom. Do you see that? You can't miss that. Look at what the text says. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. Tithing is a statement of faith, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a position of faith that says, God, you're not gonna leave me or forsake me. You're the one that's sustaining me. You're the one that's taking care of me. This is why God's attitude, God's position is Malachi chapter three, when God's people don't tithe. You know, God's whole beef with his people is you're robbing me. And you're like, how do you rob God? I'll tell you how you rob God, in tithes and offerings. In other words, what God's saying in Malachi chapter three is, is you're refusing to put me first in your life. God is a genius, okay? What did he say when he gave the law? He doesn't start with a tithe. Right, that's not, that's not how he starts the 10 commandments. How does he start? You'll have no other gods before me. That's how he starts. God wants you, he wants your heart, he wants your life. And he'll not share it with other gods, with other affections. God wants what's best for you, and what's best for you is that he's first. That's what he wants for you. Okay, so how did he set it up? Well, the Bible tells you where a man's treasure is, that's where his heart is. Okay, so what do we do, right? I, I use this illustration all the time. Here's, here's where I keep my treasure. This is, you see it, it's a wallet, wallet. You say, that's not a lot of treasure. Well, there's cards in here that represent more treasure. <laughs> I'm gonna just show you the back so that nobody with super high-res vision can <laughs> pull my number. Okay, so, it's how I access like I can access everything through this. Okay, so where am I, where's my treasure? Where a man's treasure is, where's his heart? Too many of God's people, their heart is on their own hind end and not on the Lord. God is the one that's sustaining your rear. Why not acknowledge that and put him first? God's a genius, he set it up so that, I mean the, the, the function of the tithe is to keep your heart Godward, to keep your heart in faith, to say God, everything that you've given me, you're my sustainer, you've entrusted that to me, I want to acknowledge that, you're first in my life. So before you sit down and pay your bills, you're like, you're the pastor, of course you'll say that. No, the Bible teaches this, I have to say that. We don't talk about giving every week, you, a lot of churches, they're talking about giving all the time. Uh, and they're always begging and cajoling God's people to give. No, we make disciples, and we do that from the word of God. And so when the word of God declares that I'm not apologizing for it, this is what God set up, you either believe it or you don't. You're either gonna get full of faith or you're gonna go away, that's right in your own eyes. If it's your money, you keep it, and you see how that works out for you. But if God is your sustainer, well, why don't you acknowledge that? Whenever I learned to tithe, I lived far better on the 90 cents than I ever did on the dollar. And it's always improved from there. As I've learned to grow in my giving, my quality of life has increased. I'm not telling you to give so that you'll live better. I'm telling you to give so that you'll have God's favor and blessing over the other nine dimes. Because you need it. I mean, we got inflation going through the roof right now. I need my nine dimes to go farther than they ever could before. So I need to acknowledge the Lord first. I need, to, I need to recognize him for who he is in my life. I need his blessing over not just my finances, I need it over every area of my life. Is God my sustainer or not? Am I gonna agree with him over that or not? Some of you, the reason you're trying to figure out how to get by, how to make it, is because you won't put God first in your life. It's just as simple as that. Jacob is a quick study. 
And so he's like, okay, God, fine, you're first. <laughs> Let's start right there. So the principle of giving according to income, uh, that starts in the Old Testament, is confirmed in the New. Let me give you some homework. Check out 1 Corinthians 16, verse two. So the New Testament doesn't void giving according to income. It doesn't void it, it confirms it. You're either gonna put God first in your life or you're not. You're either gonna go God's way or you're gonna go your way. You're either gonna get God's provision and blessing over your life or you're gonna go get what you can for yourself. I'd like us to bow our heads. I'd like us to humble ourselves before the Lord right now. And I'd like us to pray. How many would say, Pastor, pray for me? I've not been, I've not been at a place of faith. I've been going a way that's right in my own eyes. And I need to acknowledge the Lord in my life. I need to believe the Bible that God is with me. He'll never leave me or forsake me. He's my provider. He's my sustainer. So I need to quit living my life going away that's right in my own eyes. I need to rededicate my life to Christ this week. I need to put him first. Is there anybody like that in this service? Pastor, pray for me. Okay, we've got a few. Is there anybody that would say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I've never had God in my life. All I've ever done is go my own way. I need to be saved. I need God to take my life this morning. Pastor, please, would you pray for me? Is there anyone like that? I don't know that Christ is my Lord and Savior. I don't know that God's my Father. I don't know that if I died, I'd spend eternity with him in heaven. Please pray for me. Is there anyone like that in this service? So Father, you see us, and you see us for where we're at and, and for who we are, and you see us in our circumstances, you see us in our need. And God, I wanna lift up my brothers and sisters to you that, that are recognizing that today needs to be a day of rededication, of acknowledging you, uh, who you are, what you've done in our life. And so Lord, please, Would you not let this be a thing where it's just an emotional moment, but let it be a decision of life. Let it be a decision of steadfast, steadfast faithfulness moving forward. And so as people acknowledge, as they recognize, Lord, you're the God who never leaves or forsake. Your, your promises are sure. You, you are a promise-keeping God. As we acknowledge that you are our provider and our sustainer, that Lord, we would walk in the reality of that, that we wouldn't go away that's right in our own eyes. We go by your word, that we wouldn't do what we think or feel is correct, that we'd submit to your commands over our life. God, we don't want the best that we can get out of life. We don't want the results that we can produce. God, we want you to be our sustainer and our provider. Uh, we want your blessing over our life. God, we ask this for our church. And so brothers and sisters, if you could just pray with me and agree with me as the Lord leads you, but, but Lord, we want this place to be uh, what it is, your house, and we want it to be out evident. We want people to come in and respond in fear of you, a holy, godly fear of you, and say this is none other but your house. This is the gate of heaven. Not that coming to this church will save anyone, but the Savior that we worship, he is the author and the way of salvation. Lord, we want souls to be saved because of how you're working in and through your people. And we ask for this today in Jesus' name, amen.